In a few moments, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. You'll find it helpful if you've got a Bible or got it on your phone to have it in front of you, because we're going to read one particular story, but I want to look at the whole chapter to set the scene, if you like. But before we do that, we're going to pray. Jesus, thank you, you're with us. You promise that, you don't need any persuading. It's not a date in your diary. You are with us. That's what you died on the cross for. Thank you, Jesus, that as we worshipped, spoke about your power, everything you've done for us, Lord, you are with us. We're not talking about history. We're talking about the reality of you being here today. And as we look at your word, Lord, as we look at stories that happened a long time ago, I pray give us fresh revelation and understanding. Lord, these things we'll look at for quite a few of us, they're not new, but Lord, we need the truth of what you've done for us to be like fresh bread today, fresh food for our souls, strength, Lord God, for how we're living in our communities, workplaces, families, to come and equip your church, come and give revelation again, Jesus, of your majesty, amen. Each of the Gospels is obviously giving their account of the good news of Jesus, but each of the Gospel writers has a different aim or a different part of the audience that they're going for in terms of who would read them. So each of them have kind of different themes or angles going through in the way they present what they saw and heard of Jesus. Um, And that affects how they... The stories that they choose, which is why the Gospels aren't all the same, there's some stories which are in each Gospel, then there's other stories which are just in one Gospel. Um, And that's just for those of you who may be new to the Bible, the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Um, And there were plenty of people around at the time that if these accounts weren't real, then they'd have told everybody. And part of the reason why we know that these accounts are reliable is because they never would have made it through into our scripture if Matthew, who we're going to talk about today, was lying. Because there'd have been plenty of people, including the religious community and including the Roman government that was ruling at the time, they would have stopped it. They could have easily said, look, Matthew's a liar. Because we have these 50 people who were also there at the time Matthew's writing, and they're telling us Matthew's lying. But that just didn't happen. These are eyewitness accounts that are faithful. But each one is writing slightly differently. Matthew, one of what the things Matthew wants to do, um, he's wanting the Jewish and, if possible, the religious Jews to understand that Jesus really is the one who was promised. He really is the one that is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Um, so sometimes you'll see Matthew says, it was said, and then he talks about what Jesus is doing. And when he says it was said, he's talking about what the prophets said in the Old Testament. And when we read our stories, of course it's fine to read an individual story, but to get a fuller understanding, it's good to read the stories either side of it. And like, as we're going to see today, um, when we read one particular story, Matthew's trying to make a point throughout the whole chapter. And he groups the stories together for that reason. And that's how you should read any part of the Bible, actually. Not just pulling out a verse or pulling out a story, It is fine to take an individual story. There's truth in that story. But often, particularly with the gospel writers, they're putting it somewhere 
um, in an order because I want to make an overall point. So in the whole chapter, Matthew chapter 9, again, he's trying to show Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is the one who was promised and he has come. So the first story is Jesus gets into the boat, crosses the lake, comes to a town, and then a paralyzed man is brought to him. Um, and the f- friends of the paralyzed man wants him, want Jesus to heal him. But Jesus forgives the man's sins. And the religious rulers, some of the Pharisees, are all thinking, this is blasphemy. Only God forgives sins. And of course, you have to go to the temple to make a sacrifice. You can't forgive sins on the street. You can't just get out of a boat and say your sins are forgiven. Who does Jesus think he is? Which, of course, is the point, <laughs> who Jesus thinks he is. Matthew's teaching that he really is God. That's how he can do this. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and, he, and so he questions them back and says, look, just to show that I've got the authority to do this, he turns to the man and says, get up and walk. And the man jumps up, and everyone is amazed. And Jesus is saying, look, if I can heal him, if I've got that kind of authority over sickness, and this man has not walked and is paralyzed, and now he gets up, I've got authority to <coughs> forgive sins. The prophet Isaiah had talked about the one that would come would have healing and the sick would be healed. Matthew was saying that the prophet talked about this and it's happening. Then in the next story that begins in verse 9 is Matthew's story. Matthew's a tax collector. He's working for the Roman government. They're oppressing um, God's people. High taxes. Matthew collects taxes. No one would have liked Matthew's. The Romans wouldn't have liked him because he's a Jew and the Jews didn't like him because he worked for the Romans. But Jesus goes to him and says, come on, Matthew, you can follow me. And he goes and has a meal with him. And once again, the religious people see this. And they, well, how can this be a prophet? How can he be from God? He's eating with sinners. Food in the Middle East, you've heard me say this before, is a big deal. You don't eat with anyone unless you agree with them. You don't eat with anyone unless you're happy to be with them. You don't eat with anyone unless the relationship is good. It's quite interesting this week. I've been asked this before, but it seems to be asked it a lot um, with the different communities I was talking about, Iranian, Arabs, etc. While we were doing some of the teaching, we would break and have some food because um, we were going into the evening. And in Turkish, you say, afiyet olsun, when you're having food or when you finish. It's a bit like bon appetit. Enjoy your food. May the food bring you health. Um, and there's a phrase in Arabic as well. And some of these believers were saying, what do you say in English? Nothing might say enjoy it, hope it's nice, but we don't say may it bring health. We don't say may your body be blessed as you eat. Why? Food's not important in English culture. We like it, and it's nice having friends around, but in the Middle East, a meal is really important. So therefore, you have greetings and sayings and words to describe what you want to happen as you eat together. So Jesus eating with Matthew is a big deal. And the Pharisees say, if, how can he do this if he's from God? Jesus hears them. He says this. This is verse 12 of Matthew 9. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's who Jesus has come for. He's come for sinful people. He's come for the excluded. He's come for those who are on the edge. He's come for those that the religious people have rejected. And then he says this. Go and learn what this means, says Jesus. And he's being really provocative because the Pharisees should know what this means. Desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And that's a quote from Hosea the prophet. So Matthew's doing it again. Look, Jesus says to the Pharisees, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And here's Jesus giving mercy to a tax collector. Jesus is fulfilling the prophets. Next story, John the Baptist. He was the one, he was like a prophet. He came before Jesus saying, Jesus is coming. The one from God is coming. John the Baptist's disciples are a bit confused because Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. And fasting is a good religious practice. So they come to Jesus and say, why aren't, they, why aren't you fasting? This is an important time. God's calling his people back to him. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus comments about new wine skins and new wine coming. And you need a, a new wine skin for this. You can't use an old one. Um, and that's a quote that's referring to Isaiah, that new wine will be available when God sends, uh, <coughs> when he sends the Messiah. You can come to me and drink the finest wine. Um, and then Jesus also says, and this is important for the next story, that the bridegroom will be taken from them. Who fasts when the bridegroom's there? I don't know if any of you have ever been to a wedding and fasted. No? We're normally going to weddings thinking, we hope the nosh is good. We hope it's good food. We hope they've got good caterers. Um, and Jesus says to them, who fasts when the bridegroom is there? Why is Jesus talking about himself being the bridegroom? So again, Matthew is saying, look, Jesus is talking about the things the prophets talked about. And then we come to the story I want us to read. So we've had Jesus healing the sick. We've had Jesus saying he's come for mercy, not sacrifice. We've had Jesus saying he's not come for the healthy, he's come for the sick. And we've had Jesus saying that he is the bridegroom. So verse 18. Whilst he was saying this about the bridegroom, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died. But you come and put your hand on her, and she will live. He's a bit different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, why is Jesus doing The Pharisees would have had big beards, long robes. Why is Jesus doing this? How can he be from God? Oh, don't like this. Forgive him sin. This synagogue ruler, different from the Pharisees, slightly different beliefs, different political views. He's a humble man. He's desperate, too. Why, maybe he has seen Jesus heal the paralyzed man. Maybe he knew him. He probably would have done. If it's in the same town, he'd have known him. So maybe he's seen this power. Maybe he's heard Jesus say, I've come for the sick. And he's thinking, I'm desperate. My daughter's died. So he comes to Jesus and he asks for help. Jesus got up, went with him, and so did his disciples. There's a crowd going. Just then a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge or the hem of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. The woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. So they're crying and weeping. It's the official mourning party. And then they laugh. It shows how much their grief was genuine. Because when Jesus said that she was asleep, they all thought, she's not sleeping, she's definitely dead. But Jesus knew he's about to make her alive. So that's what he's talking about. He's not saying she's actually, her heart is still beating. 
and she just needs some kind of medical treatment. Now, he knows she's dead, but when his power is there, she might as well just be sleeping because he's going to race her to life. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this thread spread throughout that region. I bet it did. <laughs> what a miracle. If you're going to try and show that Jesus is more than a prophet, that Jesus is the one who the prophets talked about, if you're going to show that Jesus has come from God, there's no better way to show that he has power over death itself. It's an incredible story. The humility of the synagogue ruler, Jesus responding and going straight away. But that's not the story I want to talk about. I want to talk about the woman. Just a couple of lines in this story. Because Matthew is also making an amazing point in including her. We need to understand that she had been bleeding for 12 years. And according to the law, that makes her unclean. And she should not be out in public. Because if she is unclean and other people touch her, then they become unclean. Because this was how the law worked. The law just tells you what's unclean um, and, how to, and how to get clean. But it doesn't give you any power. It just gives you lots of rules. And so if she went out in public and other people were to touch her, they would become unclean as well. <coughs> so she shouldn't even be out on the streets. We know from when Luke tells, the other gospel writers tell this story, that uh, she had spent all her money on doctors and could not get well. So she's desperate. Not only has she been bleeding for 12 years, she can't even get whole, whole again. She can't get well again, which means she's got to continually live in shame and isolation. She can be in her home, probably have her family around her, but she can't go out and talk with friends and neighbors or go on the streets. Others would have to go and do her shopping or she'd have to cover up completely so she couldn't be seen. She is completely unclean. She is experiencing shame and has been doing so for 12 years. This is why she doesn't ask Jesus to heal her. You think she'll be just as desperate as a synagogue ruler. She's just seen that the synagogue ruler has asked Jesus, and Jesus has said yes. Why doesn't she ask Jesus? She has to hide. She can't let anyone see her. That's why she's going up behind him. That's why she's trying to get her way through the crowd of the disciples the other gospel writers tell us that there were many, many people around Jesus. So when he said, who's touched me, which is how the other gospel writers tell it, the disciples like, Jesus, really? There's loads of people here. She can't just go up to his face because she is living in shame. And if this man is from God, or is it, if he is some kind of prophet, or if he is some kind of religious teacher, there's no way I want him to see me because this will be even more shameful. And I don't want my friends and neighbors, and I certainly don't want the men with the big beards to see me. Because if the men with the big beards see me, they're going to shout and say, get away, get away from her, unclean, now go, leave, go back home. Why are you on the streets? That's, that's what would have happened if anyone had seen her, especially from the religious community. More shame, more embarrassment, more dishonor, more isolation, more crushing pain that she's never going to be whole. So she has somehow... Jesus. Maybe she had heard about the man being <coughs> raised up who was paralyzed and knew that Jesus had power. Maybe somehow she'd heard Jesus saying, I've come with mercy. And she's thinking, well, well, maybe there'll be mercy for me then. The law doesn't give me any mercy. The Lord just says, stay at home. Maybe a friend had said, look, he says he's come for the sick. You're sick. Maybe there's a way. How, whatever she came to it, somehow she found faith. Somehow she knew 
if I can just touch him. It just seems that when he touches bodies, when he touches a paralyzed man, he's raised up. Maybe if I can just touch him, maybe that's enough. All the doctors I've been to, they can't do anything. But this man is different. And people are speaking nice things about him. Because she'd have heard all of this. She'd have been okay to be around her family, but no one else. And those of you who've lived in small communities, you know everyone talks about everything. And, and if anything happens in the village, within an hour, the whole village knows. That's exactly what it had been like. So she'd have heard some of these things that have happened. And maybe not these stories, and certainly the stories that have happened earlier. So she heads out. People in that part of the world, as you know, ladies would wear a head covering. I think she pulled it up really tight. I think she just would have had her eyes showing. She'd have pulled it tightly round. She wouldn't have had to do that for religious reasons. Just have your head covering. You can see the face as far as Jews are concerned. But I think she'd have covered completely because she didn't want anyone to see her. And she's heading out. Can I get to Jesus? Where is he? Oh, he's leaving. He's going to the synagogue. Maybe now's my chance. Maybe now people are moving. Now he's not teaching. Maybe now I can go. Up comes the scarf. She slips. I hope no one sees me. I hope no one sees me. She edges and gets closer and closer. I just got to touch him. Just the corner of his garment, just the hem is enough. And then, the worst thing possibly for her could happen. We don't get it because we know you're going to be healed. What's the problem here? Jesus turns. Jesus knows he's been touched. And Jesus wants to know who's touched him. And he turns and looks at her. Before he spoke, in that moment, she'd have felt nothing but shame. It's hard for us who don't come from a shame culture. It's hard for us who, who aren't brought up thinking about what's clean and unclean and who haven't lived for those things uh, for 12 years. It's hard for us to understand what she'd have felt in that moment. I've been seen. He knows I've touched him. And all these men who are following him, they're important, they're honorable. They're now looking at me. The synagogue ruler, he's definitely important. He's humble, but he's really important. He's now looking at me. And he wants Jesus to go to his house. And he's now looking at me. And I don't know if the men with the big beards were still there, but if they were, she's thinking, I'm in trouble. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, fear. And then Jesus says, your faith has healed you. The words that she thought she'd never hear. The words she thought no one could ever say. He calls her daughter. Imagine the honor and the beauty in that exchange. As fear rushes in on her, as shame rushes in. And this holy man, this prophet, this teacher, this one who they're beginning to say is from God, calls her daughter. I imagine her head would have lifted at that point. She'd have been ready to look him in the eyes. She wasn't before. Maybe at that moment, I don't know, maybe she stayed with her head still bowed. Maybe the scarf still pulled tight. Maybe tears beginning to come. Her heart would have been racing. And I'm taking time over this, but it's ever so important we understand because of the power of what's happening here. And she says, you're healed. I wonder if she knew it. I wonder if she felt that. Ladies, you can probably imagine this more than what the guys can. But I just linger on it because it's important. 
she'd have known me, she'd have got home, of course. What if she ran home? <laughs> but in that moment, she was healed. Everything changed. Everything that Matthew has just talked about earlier is seen again. He's come for the sick. He's come with mercy. He's come for those who are ostracized, those who the religion has rejected, those who are on the outside, those who feel shame and feel dirty, those who are hiding, those who cover their faces. That's who Jesus has come for. And he's prepared to stop. Before I move on, let me just say that. For any of you that are living in pain, either pain in your heart, pain in your circumstances, certainly physical pain, but other pain, Jesus will stop for you. You may be thinking, why has he not stopped yet? Well, just ask him again. I don't know how many times you feel that you've reached out. But I do know that Jesus stops. Lots of other people don't always stop, but Jesus does. If he sees a broken heart that's reaching out to him, he will stop. All kinds of crowds around him, all kinds of needs. There's a really important synagogue ruler. Remember, Jesus has come to try and show these people, of all people, that he's the Messiah. It's going to look really good if Jesus can make the synagogue ruler happy, especially with the grumpy bearded men who are unhappy. But Jesus still stops. Could have kept walking. But he stops. And we know the story of this woman because Jesus stopped. And every single one of us are in the room today pretty much because Jesus stopped for us to show his love and his mercy and his grace. It would have looked different than this probably. And if you've never known this personal side of what we believe in this community, maybe today's the day for you to hear that. That what we believe, it gets called Christianity because it's about Christ, but because of religious terms and politics, we kind of lose the power. We follow a person who's God, whose name's Jesus, and he stops for the broken. And that's what this story is about. But what's even more remarkable is Matthew is once again showing the prophets talked about this. Matthew is the only one who says it was the hem of his robe. The other gospel talks about Jesus turning and saying, who touched me? Who is it? All the crowds pushing in. Matthew is zooming in on a particular detail because he wants his audience to know Jesus is the one that the prophets talked about. Jesus is the one who's come for his people. The prophecy that this reminds Matthew of is in Ezekiel. If you want to turn, I'm going to read it, but if you want to turn to it, it's in Ezekiel 16. And in Ezekiel 16, the prophet is talking about how God's people have been unfaithful and how God's people are living in shame. But when God looks at them, he sees the shame. But, but then what God does is what Jesus did with this woman. So I'm not reading the whole thing. I'm going to read it from verse 8. But this is God looking at his people in shame. Later, I passed by. When I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the hem of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness, your shame. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. It's talking about marriage, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Listen, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you 
I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. It's talking about a wedding. It's talking about how God came and found his people naked and bleeding and in shame. And the right thing to do in the culture is to cover someone, so a man to protect a woman is to cover the shame with the hem of his garment. Some of you know another story about this. We haven't got time to talk about it, but it's Ruth and Boaz, for those of you that know your Bibles. Don't worry if you don't know that story. You're not missing out. But it's another story of where a man covered a woman and made a covenant and put the hem of his garment over her. And Ezekiel is talking about this. That God sees his people living in shame, living naked, covered in blood, dirty, and instead of rejecting them and instead of walking away and instead of quoting the law and instead of saying you're unclean and instead of saying why are you out on the street, he covers them with the hem of the garment and makes a covenant of love, a covenant to be the husband. Oh yes, Jesus talked about the bridegroom and Matthew put it in the story just before this one because God said to Israel, his people, you're my bride, I'm the bridegroom and he's talking about how he found them in shame but instead of rejecting them, instead of quoting the law, he comes with love and makes a covenant and marries them and washes the blood and clothes them as a bride. Ointments, bangles, jewelry and a crown and takes them to be his forever and ever. And Matthew says this woman, this lady, who probably isn't thinking anything about this story, that's not Matthew's point, but Matthew knowing the scripture, Matthew knowing what the prophets talked about, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remembers, hang on, there's a prophecy about how God comes and cleanses blood, about how God comes and covers shame, about the hem of the garment. This is beautiful. Matthew's doing this deliberately. That's why I took us through the first half of the chapter, because each time Matthew is saying, the prophet talks about this, the prophet talks about this, the prophet talks about this, and this woman... I is a prophet who talks about this. See, at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of Jesus' coming, at the heart of everything we celebrate in following Jesus is love. Burning, passionate love. Because Jesus has come for a bride. Jesus has come for his people. Jesus has come not to bring judgment, not to bring anger. He was with the religious people. He was with those who rejected him. He had plenty of judgment to say to them, it's tragic that whilst this is going on, you've got the men with the beard saying, we don't think he's from heaven because he spends time with all the wrong people. Totally missing, this is what love and salvation is about. And this is what mercy looks like. Jesus came for the broken, for the rejected, for the ostracized, for the shameful, for the unclean. He's come to take away their shame, to wash them and make them beautiful again. This little two lines is the good news it's the gospel the whole chapter is about this jesus taking shame and cleansing us forgiving the wrong things to do that having power to heal but for the broken and for those on the edge you see the story that you've got on your phone or in your bible the whole story is a story of how god wants a people a people who he made in his image and then turned from him I was asked a question, I taught a different story last week that was from the Garden of Eden 
I think I taught it here last year, and about how man didn't eat the food that God gave them, but ate from the wrong tree. And this Iranian brother said, why did God put the tree there? Well, the answer is God loves us so much, he wants us to be free. Which means free to choose whether we love back or not. That's how pure God's love is. Not a controlling love that says, I love you so much, but I'm not going to give you a choice. I love you so much, but I'm going to make you like robots. Or I love you so much, I'm, I'm going to keep all evil out of this world, because then there's no choice. What kind of love doesn't have a choice? For love to be real, intimate, passionate, and like fire, it has to have a choice not to do that. Otherwise, it's not love. We know that. In going off at a tangent now, what's the time? Okay, this is worth it. Next month, one of our daughters gets married. We're very, very excited and happy about it. Why are we so excited about it? I'm going to get walking down the aisle. All, each of my five kids are all placing bets on at what point will dad cry. That's silly. I'm going to cry through the whole thing. I get to marry them. That's a real honor. I'll be crying, probably. Do you take this with you? You do. <laughs> Why do we feel like that? Because they've chosen each other. Because they've given their hearts. Not because marriage and love was just automatic. Not because it's just what we do. I'd be ridiculous. Heather and I have been married for over 30 years. Imagine if our story began without there being any choice. Well, you're clearly the one for me. Am I the one for you? Yes. Well, let's have a ceremony and celebrate that we're the ones for each other. I mean, it's ridiculous. Love is love because it gets to choose. And we rejected him. And the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is about how God, burning with a heart of love, hates sin, hates evil, and will bring consequences to those who will not come to him in and respond to his love. But for those who do, there's nothing but burning fire and love for them. That even though they reject him, when they turn to him, he'll cover their shame with the hem of his robe, wash them, cleanse them, and make them his. At the heart of our story is a burning, fiery love from the heart of God. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, whatever it was that came to you, that showed you that that was the right thing to do, behind that is love. This is why God chose you. Because he loved you. Every single one of you are cleansed, free from shame, free from guilt. Every single one of you, God will clothe with beautiful clothes and drawing and put a crown on your head. I know for you guys, you're thinking, I don't really want to have nice robes and bangles. Thank you very much. Well, just enjoy the fact that women are enjoying it, okay? While we talk about being the bride. But guys, what you can get is love, if you're honest. You do know that. Every single one of us craves to be loved, accepted, and received just as we are. And that's what Jesus has done. And that's what was happening in this story. See, Jesus, the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel is more than just forgiveness. He transforms us and makes us beautiful and radiant. We will be with him forever and ever. The bride is just a picture. I don't know what that's going to look like when Jesus comes back. But it's the, the greatest picture that God can think of to convey his love for us. Heather and my marriage, your marriages are a picture of a much, much greater love. They point to something beyond this. When I get to marry my daughter, her fiancé, Dan, it's pointing to something much, much greater, which is where this story ends. Being with Jesus in intimate relationship, totally cleansed, no shame, honored, 
lifted up to a high place, crowns on our head, all sin, brokenness, sickness, wounds, hurt, injustice gone because he has washed them. And what's happened in your heart is a guarantee that that's where the story finishes and is a foretaste now because God is a God of love. He's made a covenant for this. You can run, but he's after you because he's made a covenant. And that covenant wasn't with your blood, it's with the blood of his son on the cross. And by his blood, your blood, is you are washed from blood, washed from shame, washed from dirt, washed from filth. He wrote this, in, wrote the covenant on the cross of his son dying. Why am I teaching this today? Because the gospel's beautiful. And sometimes in all our busyness and running around, we just need to stop and remember it's about love and let him love us. Sometimes we just need to stop like Jesus did for that woman and remember. Even in ministry, doing church, caring for kids, reaching the town, sometimes stop. You're not doing this for strategy. You're not doing this because everyone needs to know about Jesus. You're not doing this because it's a leader's idea. You're not doing this because you feel guilty if you don't. Or you probably are doing it for that reason. Stop it. We're doing this for love. Where else are people in Sutton going to find a love like this? Where else in our broken world politically and financially are people going to know that there's another story? Because that's why I'm teaching this. Because this is our story. It's not just a story of, oh, come to a meeting on a Sunday and sing some songs and pray and live a, reorganize your diary a little bit. That's what Christians do. That's not our story. Our story has love at the heart of it. Our story has a God who stooped down so low, found us, and covered our shame. How else is something going to know? Now, we have to find the words. You think, well, my mate at work isn't going to have a clue about this story. You're suggesting I tell them this? No, I'm not suggesting you tell them this at all. But I am saying let's keep finding ways to demonstrate this kind of love. Because there's plenty of people that can relate to the women in this story who are broken and naked and feel they haven't got any hope. Oh, yeah, they'll be wearing masks. Yeah, they'll be in your office pretending everything's all right. They'll be at the school gate hanging out where you're hanging out, thinking everything's all right. Some of you know them. You've seen people. You've had insights. You thought, I know that woman's really broken. I know that guy at work isn't together as he likes to make up. I know all the bravado when we go for a drink afterwards at the pub. It's just bravado and he's empty. Keep pursuing him because Jesus is. And yeah, we're all, you can think of people around us who aren't interested and, and don't want to know. Well, okay. Sadly, maybe they're the ones with the big beards who are judging everything. Jesus was still ready to receive them like the synagogue ruler who came and asked. But he was also ready to stop. It's love that causes us to write vision statements like this. I know Stuart and Mel and your leaders well enough. These things help sum it up, but what's at the heart of what they want is this burning, passionate love for Birmingham and for Sutton. The reason they asked me to talk about the Middle East is because it's about love. Just going off on that, sometimes people say to me, why do you go to the Middle East? Isn't it dangerous? Well, not that much more dangerous than London at the moment, to be honest, and I'm not being flippant. But it's love that gets us on the plane. Who else is going to show them that there's a different story? Who else is going to show them that religion and religious laws and religious buildings are not about hate or about exclusiveness or saying everyone else is different and we're the best? It's not what Jesus came for. He came for love. And I teach this to remind us this 
is the bride. And sometimes we need to stop and remember that too. It's not just another meeting, small groups, discipleship, events. This is the bride. Jesus loves this. Now, I know, and I know this has happened to some of you, just because I know what goes on in a city like Birmingham and churches breaking and people having to go to another church because they've been hurt and wounded. We need to let Jesus' love define what the church is and not our experiences of broken hearts or abusive leaders or communities that gossiped and hurt us. And some of you today, there is healing for you because Jesus wants to take your pain. And Jesus wants to bring honor to you. Yeah, but that church, don't tell me that was the bride. Let, leave it with Jesus. He'll cleanse them. He'll come to them. And for those that are ready, he'll wash them. And let him wash you today and wash away the hurt. This is the bride. This, what's, this goes into eternity. This is what he takes from this world. Everything else gets wrapped up and made again. This doesn't. This is his bride. This is what he came for. And of course, the power, let's finish. The power, two of this story is, is what Ezekiel was talking about, was an unfaithful people and a faithful God. And if right now, you're not as close to God as you should be, or you're hurting, or life's just got phenomenally busy, and you're kind of here, not really with love at the fore, forefront of your mind, but just out of duty or out of something else, come back to him. Make it about love again. Because he's waiting and he's ready. God is faithful, we're not. That's the beauty of the story. You turn to him and he will come to you at any time. None of you can be too unfaithful to outdo God's faithfulness. That's what Ezekiel was talking about. Let's pray. We're going back into worship now. If the band want to come up and start worshipping. Let's just stay sitting down. Holy Spirit, you're here. This is such a powerful story. It's powerfully emotionally. It's powerfully intellectually when we see how your big story of Scripture joins up. And that's good. But Lord, that's not what we're here for. We don't just want to be stirred emotionally. You don't just want to be stirred intellectually as we put the Bible together. It's helpful we understand it. Lord, we're here for encounter. We're here to know you, Jesus. We're here because... Sundays does give us a chance just about to stop, to stop and look at you. And Lord, as we worship now, I pray you'd, you, you're already working, I can see it, but I pray you'd work deeply in our hearts. Lord, every one of us, Lord, for those of us who are feeling close to you, who are feeling that our walk with you is going well, just come to us with a deeper understanding of your love for us and strengthen us, Lord. But Lord, for others where healing is needed, come and bring healing. Lord, where there's tears, Lord, we, we need you. We can't do this. We need another touch from you. Lord, for people here, and I think there's a few, who right now, hopelessness or no hope would be how they would describe things. They're making life work, but there's not a lot of hope about the place. It's just routine. Lord, come and bring hope. Come and bring hope, Jesus. This woman for 12 years had no hope. And then she heard, as a man with power, there's a man who with one touch people walk who couldn't walk before. There's a man who says he's come with mercy. Maybe if I touch him. Jesus, come and bring hope to our hearts, please.
Now, just for a moment, you, you, you begin to talk to Jesus now. I've done some for you, but you talk to him. Either tell him that you love him, thank him for this story, thank him for his incredible passion, or if there's things in your life, you think, Jesus, I need you to stop for this situation. Tell him that. It might not be you. It may be one of your children. It may be someone you know. You just tell him. You ask him, what do you want? What's one touch from Jesus needed for? Okay, let's stand. Let's keep the attitude of prayer going. The band are going to lead us, but the, the Spirit's resting on us now. He's here. Worship him deeply. Reach out to him.